Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, When you go to the Sojourn website, You'll see the phrase, glorify God, equip, evangelize the lost, and equip the saints. And that's our way of um, summarizing the Great Commission. And that's our mission statement, so to speak. And what mission does, which is what today's title is, uh, the fourth in our little series in between two, uh, two books. We really love to go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and, and see what God unveils to us. Um, And periodically, after a long one, we'll kind of revisit our essentials, so to speak. What what makes the DNA of our local church? And where do we get those strands of DNA from in Scripture? And so this week's is mission. And uh, when we mean mission, we mean mission. What's our mission? What is the mission that Christ gave to us as a local church uh, to do until he comes back? And what mission does is it unites people around a cause. It's really important to know what your mission is. Uh, That's why... uh, you guys probably can think of many missions in your life uh, because mission is something that you, sometimes you catch it more than, it's caught more than taught type of thing, but we want to keep revisiting it so that it becomes part of our DNA. And you can probably think of many missions. Like I said, I can think of our, uh, our mission of our basketball team when I was like a junior uh, and on our shirts. You put these on shirts, right? Little phrases. Like we ha- ours was no D, no O, meaning if you don't play defense really hard and actually like be really intimidating on defense and it doesn't matter if you're good on offense right and you can probably think of many uh mission statements the same whether or not we actually did that i'm not sure but uh that's why teams slap boards when they go out in the field that's why they break out their huddles to certain things it's why your employer probably has some mission statements for you and likewise here at sojourn we periodically revisit our mission uh the great commission because we want that to be in our dna But it's also important, before we get into that, to understand that mission also brings clarity to a purpose, and it also brings unity for the people that are taking part in it. So we don't want you to be wasting your time here. We don't want to be wasting our time. So if you're new to Sojourn, we're trying to say this is our, we want to clarify our mission so that, I mean, we only have a precious few years on this earth before eternity, so we might as well not be wasting them. So are you on mission or are you not? That's why we give a mission out. And then also just for unity's sake. Uh, and also, if, you've, if you're newer here, and, and you know, this is kind of the mission of our church, but also if you've been here for a long time, we have to revisit this, just like we need to revisit the gospel every single day in our own lives, right? So it's not something that we just say it once and we forget it. We want to remind ourselves. Um, and when I speak of unity, I don't just mean unity for unity's sake, so to speak. Um, we're not going to compromise certain doctrines so that we can be more unified. That's not what I'm talking about when we say unity and mission unites people. Uh, We're not going to uh, seek unity just because it's easier to do. We're going to seek unity because it's actually part of the Great Commission. And I think it gets missed a lot. But in John 
chapter 17, I'll show you what I mean right here. Jesus prays for us. This is his high priestly prayer, and he's going to be on the cross by noon, okay? This is the night before, and he prays for certain groups of people, and the last thing he does is he prays for everyone who's going to believe in his name because of the word that they're going to be testifying. And so he's praying for us right here, and this is what he prays. Of all the things he could pray, future believers, he could have prayed boldness, bravery, protection, all sorts of things. Not, those aren't bad. Holiness, those are great things, right? But of all the things he could have prayed, he prays for us to be unified. Look at verse 21 with me there. I'll read it. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That we may all be one. Like his unity in the Trinity even, which there can't be more unity than that, right? That's what he prays for us. And that's a really big purpose clause. The so that, is that a purpose clause actually? You know, English teachers in here. I think it's a purpose clause. That's what I'm going to call it. So that, right, the purpose being that the world would believe that the Father sent Jesus. So we can't say we really want to be about the Great Commission and then um, not really care about unity. He does it two times. Actually, there's another. You can put the next slide up. Two verses later, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you love me. It's not like Jesus forgot what he said two verses ago. He's really emphasizing this. And actually, I'd say he's emphasizing it more than we can even say he's emphasizing it. Our words don't really do it justice. At the end of John, he says that, hey, if I wrote down everything Jesus said and did, it would fill volumes. We can't even do it. So why would he say this? He chose to pick this, and then he chose to say it twice in three verses because it's really, really important for us. And so we want to make sure, before we even talk about the mission... We can't say we love the mission and the Great Commission and that we want all peoples to be reached if we aren't also about unity here in the body because that's going to be the proof. There's so many things he could have said would have been the proof. He could have said, hey, I'm going to give you a really good plan and it's going to be better than anyone else's in the world's plan to show that I am real. Or I'm going to show you the archaeological discoveries that corroborate all the places in the Bible. Or, hey, I'm going to have you bring people on stage and heal them you know, and, and do really awesome things, and that's going to prove that I'm Jesus. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, be unified, as unified as possible. And so we want to make sure before we even start that we can't act like we care about reaching the world if we're also not the greatest example of unity um, so that the Great Commission can be fulfilled. And mission helps us do that. That's why we're here. Mission unifies. It reminds us of our DNA so that if we drift, we will be corrected by the Word and by the Holy Spirit. Sojourn has grown over the years. Mission drift is always a real possibility for any group of people. If you grow, you're definitely susceptible to it. I, I would even say if you don't grow, you're susceptible to mission drift, right? Because you resort to human means to try to get back what you lost. But if you grow especially, you're susceptible to mission drift. And uh, I'm not talking about, what I'm not talking about when we say drift from our mission is just that it feels different now as Sojourn has grown. I thought that was an awesome picture of the early church last week. We talked about how the church grew from just a few home, a room to some homes to some more homes to the temple, you know, thousands of people added in one day. They did a really good job of showing us um, that it probably felt different as their gatherings grew. And just to remind us that we're sojourners on this earth. That's why the name of our church is Sojourn. But mission drift is more than that. Mission drift is not feeling different as things change. Mission drift is forgetting and compromising uh, the priority of the Great Commission that we've been given on this earth. And I want to read a really quick 10-step 
I saw this yesterday, and I was like, man, I wish I would have saw that during sermon prep. I would have just copied it and acted like it was mine. Just kidding. I wouldn't have done that. Um, no, I want to give credit where credit's due. This guy's been a pastor for a long time uh, in the East, and then now he's uh, heads up a thing called For the Church at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. Awesome guy. Uh, really wise. His name's Jared Wilson. And he just clarified so quickly what Mission Drift looks like and, so, and what can lead to it. So I'm going to read them really fast to kind of help us go there. This is be great. Maybe Dylan or Jim, we could actually email this out for uh, home groups as well. But 10 ways you can mission drift in your church. Number one, over-program. To mistake activity for mission and busyness for fruitfulness. Number two, pour all your energy into the weekend service. That'll help you drift off your mission. Uh, it says, for many churches, the extent of their weekly thinking, planning, strategy, creativity is channeled into the production of the weekend gathering. They justify this inward focus by trying to design the service as evangelistically and seeker-minded as possible, but it effectively turns the go-and-tell mission of mission into the come-and-see of attraction. I'm going to talk about the come-and-see thing uh, in a second. They use too much insider lingo. Quit speaking Christianese to people that don't know it, right? You're going to drift off your mission. They, they won't understand what we're talking about. Number four, they're just plain unwelcoming. Uh, this, this is a very welcoming body. In fact, like I would say, good job. Like, they're frequently. I'm like, hey, how's your about soldier? No, oh, my friend invited me. Hey, you invited a home group? Yeah, you're also the third person to ask me this Sunday morning, so can you back off, right? Like, <laughs> I get that. You guys are pretty good at that. But it's talking about, he actually goes on to talk about, not just like on the Sunday morning, but also um, in, in the smaller groups, you might have some friends. It's easier to probably set foot in your home. Your neighbor's probably easier going to come to your home than maybe to a Sunday gathering if they are uh, an unbeliever who is interested. Uh, number, number five, they're preoccupied with politics. Uh, their pastors are too busy culture warring to be soul winning. And their people are too busy arguing about who should be president to consider how their anger and worry might not adorn the gospel. That was written five years ago, by the way. This is not, this is not, yeah. Number six, they're still stuck in the past, culturally speaking. Some churches look frozen in time, um, trying to hold on to tradition. Tradition and history is good, but you shouldn't look like it stepped into a time machine in the 70s because you may not be able to adequately contextualize the gospel for your community. Number seven, they're trying to recreate the past. Some churches have moved on from the past, but are desperate to get it back. But a church can kill its future by constantly trying to recapture the good old days. Mainly because this is an inward focus, and also because, this is funny, outsiders, visitors, and the lost don't care one bit about your church's good old days. And they don't. Number eight, they're preoccupied with social justice causes, but not doctrine. Um particularly deceptive, it says, because socially conscious churches look like they're on mission, but if the gospel is not at the center of what we say and do, it's not God's mission and we're, that we're on. And the opposite of that, number nine, they're doctrinally rigorous but socially withdrawn. These churches are hearers of the word only. Sometimes they are so suspicious of social justice and the social gospel that they'd rather die than be caught making concerted effort to care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And number ten, they are divided or otherwise riddled with conflict and power plays. Pray for our church. Always pray for the church, right? That we would not drift from our mission. And that's why we're here today. It's important. It is so important to show the world that Christ is alive and that he's a hope. There's hope in this world. And there's, of all years, right? We need some hope right now. Um, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through every passage today in the Gospels that we call Jesus' great commission to us. And I'm not going to spend too much time defending why we believe the Great Commission is the church's mission. There's actually debate on that. Um, and we're not going to go too far into that. 
But if we fail to stop, to, to keep and continue to, to fight for the Great Commission, then we don't want this to even exist, right? It's pointless. So w- that's why we have to make sure we're on mission. Um, one of the things that happens is, is, and this is why you see so many churches with so many different priorities. Uh, like I said, there's debate about what should be the mission of the church. And these are good things, right? It's a good thing to say, I want to renew the neighborhood. I want to restore peace. I want um, justice, seeking justice. And I don't think any of us would argue that we want those things for sure. But what I'm trying to say is that every good thing we're supposed to do as Christians in obedience to Christ is not the church's mission. Um, there's a really good uh, quote by a guy named Stephen Neal. <laughs> not to be confused with our own Stephen O'Neill, but literally one letter off. I, was like, I think I could see you saying this. This is a good saying. Um, but Stephen Neal said, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission. And, and we want to do all that Christ has commanded us, but let's not confuse it with the one priority, the one mission that he has left us with. Look again at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I have a slide here. There's several great commission passages we have. Uh, Mark 28, 16 through 20, probably most often read. Uh, Mark 13, 10, 14, 9, Luke 24. These are all what we would call post-resurrection teaches, teachings and then commissionings of Jesus to us, the church. What to do until he comes back. Uh, And these passages, and this is what I wanted to clarify from earlier, this is why we're not a come and see approach. These passages are different than Old Old Testament. Um, There's not really, there's a a good quote here by this guy with an awesome name, Eckhard Schnabel. Um, But he says it well. He says, the missionary work of the first Christians cannot be explained with prototypes in the Old Testament or with models of an early Jewish mission. And what I mean by that, this, is that it's a massive shift for us. The Great Commission is a massive shift. That's why it's called the Great Commission. That's why we make such a big deal out of it. Now we are to go and tell. Old Testament's more of a come and see. And yeah, they were a blessing, but it was more of a come and see. It's a go and tell. It's a big, big shift. It's ascending. You've heard it probably, that Matthew 28. Um, the, the word for go, right? Make disciples is actually translated best as as you go or um, as you're going. So go or so move. It's a command, right? Um, It's a difference. Because the Father sent the Son to us, the Son has authority now to send us. And all of those great commission passages, I was talking with Daniel earlier, it's kind of cool because they're all like the consummation of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's this consummation. It's all heading to the apex, which is the work of Christ. Um, And it's almost like the, the, but if you get to Acts, it's actually the theme verse. It's at the very beginning. The commission at Acts in 1.8 is the very beginning because it's a theme. Acts 1a is the theme for the entire book. You shall be my dis, uh, you shall make disciples in Jerusalem, right? Then it goes Judea and Samaria, which is like city or city to state country, and then to the ends of the earth, which is like the end of the world. It's the theme. So Acts 1 through 7 is all in Jerusalem. It follows Acts 1:8. And then Acts 8 through 12 is all in Judea and Samaria, like the the nation, the the city, the, the sorry, the state and the nation. And then Acts 13 through 28 is through the ends of the world. That's why, like Dylan said yesterday, our, our church, uh, I guess, group we're a part of is called Acts 29. We want to be the next step of getting the gospel uh, to, to, the, to the nation. But I, I do want to say that we want to make sure, you hear things sometimes as we talk about mission. We don't want to pit city and state versus the ends of the earth. They're both part of the commission. Um, 
I heard one pastor say, they're, and they're not concentric circles. It's not like it just goes out like this. It, it looks different. And that's a Holy Spirit thing for sure there. But we don't want to, you know, sometimes you hear that, like, why are we spending so much money overseas when we have needs here too? That is a false dichotomy. Okay, they're a, it's a both and. And we want to make sure that we're not pitting those good things against each other because they're both part of our mission. And you may have convictions or inclinations one way or another or lay in, lie in one place or another, but don't fall into the trap of pitting them against each other. Unity is vital to the Great Commission. And the enemy would love to divide us over good things. That'd be really awesome in his mind if he could do that. So with that in mind, I want to finish by talking about a couple things that the church's mission is not. And then I want to finish with current obstacles that we face here in America to complete our mission. I feel like this first part, I'm going to, I could have chosen a lot of things. This is the hard part about not just preaching one passage, but um, the first, it's going to sound a little weird actually at first, but I think you guys will, you know what I'm saying. It'll make more sense as we hold it to scripture and I expound on it. But that's this. The primary mission of the church is actually not to serve people. So now you're going to, that's, serving people is going to happen, right? But it's not the primary mission. Hear me. Service will happen. It's something the church will and should do, but it's not the primary. Like in Jesus' life actually bears this out. When you see him, uh, his mission from God, it bears this out. We just got done with Mark and uh, as you see, the, the life of Jesus, the main point definitely wasn't the miracles. And this is why Dylan teaches, you know, the gospel of Mark. We could have jumped off many other times because other gospels elaborate a little bit more on the story. But Dylan was really faithful to stay to what Mark's message was because from Mark 1 to 8, when Peter confesses Christ, the whole thing is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He did all those miracles to prove who he was. It wasn't that he was just coming to do miracles. And then from 8 to the end, it finishes, it focuses on his finished work on the cross. So it's the who he is and then the what he did to save us. Um, and that's why Mark, Mark even gives us little purpose statements. Jesus says things like, I came to call sinners. I came to preach. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. It's a quote. DeYoung and Gilbert break it down well. Um, read here. It says, the focus of his ministry is on teaching. The heart of his teaching centers on who he is. And the good news of who he is culminates in where he is going to the cross. The mission of Jesus is not service broadly conceived, but the proclamation of the gospel through teaching, the corroboration of the gospel through signs and wonders, and the accomplishments of the gospel in death and resurrection. And they also point out there's not a single time Jesus went into the town with the stated purpose of just healing or casting out demons. That happened, but that was never the stated purpose. He was just testifying to who he was and what he was going to do on our behalf. He is consistently redirecting them to the who. Uh, all those temporal things and physical needs normally are a distraction to Jesus. So once again, it's not like he didn't do these things, and we will too, but the priority was preaching the gospel, which is what ours should be as well. So what does that mean? How does that look? We want, we just built a community garden, right? Oh no. No, like... We want to do that, right? We want to build community gardens. We want to drill water wells. We want to help forgotten children get health care and education. We want to tutor kids. We want to end murder in the womb. And we want to end all injustice. The church wants to do that, right? And we want to give our resources and our time to do those things. But we have to prioritize all those good works under the mission that Christ left us, the local church. 
to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and then disciple them in Christ to go do the same. Then the other great things will happen. But if you focus on the good works more, then you might lose them both, right? Um, a good litmus test is to ask our unbelievers joining me in this work and whatever good work we're doing because people in the household of God cannot by definition join us in sharing the gospel and making disciples of all nations. Uh, so we build community gardens and drill wells and tutor or educate kids simply so we can share the gospel more and we can witness to that really good news. Um, not because we're the saviors and we can, we're, we're poor ones, right? Um, but to point to the savior. And there's a really practical point with this as I finish it up, but this point, I don't want to belabor it, but I think it's a really good place to see, like we talked about earlier, the unity of the mission. Uh, there's a really practical way. There, there might be 200 different of you in here, people that have different favorite causes, um, and that's good. You, but the problem is we could easily begin to think that ours is more important than everyone else's in the room. And if everyone wasn't as passionate as you are about your cause, then maybe they just don't understand or they're not as informed um, or holy even, God forbid. But when we unify under one great cause, right, then we can actually feel free uh, and as we prioritize those causes under th through the big lens, the Great Commission, it helps us actually support each other's God-given convictions better. Does that make sense? And join hands in pursuing that ultimate mission. So let's not pit good works against each other, or even definitely not pit good works against the ultimate mission to evangelize and disciple all peoples until Jesus comes back again. And DeYoung and Gilbert speak to this. It says, if you are looking for a picture of the early church giving itself to creation care, plans for societal renewal, and strategies to serve the community in Jesus' name, you will not find them in Acts. But if you are looking for preaching, teaching, and the centrality of the word, this is your book. And just like Jesus did other things than simply preach, the early Christians did as well. We talked about some of them last week, right? Sharing their, they would actually sell stuff when one of their brothers had need, brothers and sisters had need. They ate all the time together. They shared life. They broke bread. Awesome stuff. But what we're saying is that the focus of Acts is the focus of the mission that was given to Christ's church. And it's mainly recording how the early believers witnessed to what they'd seen God do in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. One author said this, This commission, Acts 1.8, describes the church's key assignment of what to do until the Lord returns. The priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere. Once again, we want to, and we're charged to do all of these great things, community gardens, drill wells, whatever. They all come with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what we're trying to do is reemphasizing the primary mission to make sure that we're not turning every possibility that a church could do into a responsibility for that church to do. Um, and it's, that's a great question to ask in the home groups. I heard a pastor once say, like, uh, go look at the last few conversations you've had that were meaningful about things. And you'll find out, like, where does the big mission fit into whatever your personal passionate mission or cause is. Or he said, go look at the last 15 social media posts you've made. Um, and, and maybe that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a great window into we need to kind of balance it back and put the main thing as the main thing um, and let the others fall underneath that. And that leaves us with the common obstacles that we have to finishing our mission and what God the holy words of God, might say to help us overcome them. Um, 
Last March, we had a zero area summit uh, with all the other churches in America trying to reach the zero areas, the unreached people groups in a certain area in China that we've joined hands with. Um, and they asked me to do the charge on the Friday night. And so um, they asked me to, to do, some, do that today. Uh, the context is a little different, so I wanted to make sure I, I uh, focused it up. So you might have heard some of this that's about to be preached, but... Um, the whole idea, and, and once again, I, uh, I might get fired up. I don't know. Um, but I'm also, I'm more fired up at myself as, 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 as I was kind of reading through this and studying it again. I'm just, I feel like I've drifted. And I think this is a really great way to study God's mission to help us uh, remind ourselves of where, where we need to hear the words of God. So it all started, Barna um, came out with some research last year. Uh, the new Barna research was, I'm sure there's been like a bunch since then, but... 94% of practicing Christians from ages 20 to 34 say this, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. And that seems pretty good. It is a little perplexing that there happens to be 6% of practicing Christians that still think that there must have been something better. But uh, that's not the perplexing part I'm going to share with you. Uh, and when it says practicing Christians, Barna goes through, they know that there's nominal Christians. These aren't people that just come to church once a month or something. These are people very involved in being a Christian. Um, and this is the part, the stat that was blown, that blew my mind and, and still does. Uh, it's kind of scary. So let's look at the next slide there. It says 47%, almost half of these millennial practicing Christians, said that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And that's a little mind blowing. And there's a lot of studies in America. You've probably seen a lot of stuff. I see a lot on social media back when I used to have it. Um, going to churches, less people going to churches, way more and people claiming nothing on the list or nuns, as they say, uh, on the list of what they personally believe. Um, there's crises in bigger denominations that have caused people to sour on the church. Uh, public opinion of Christianity is not very high. And they're all real challenges to the church in the U.S., those are all very real challenges, and it makes evangelism complicated here. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an article about this in the Gospel Coalition. He says this, in short, doing evangelism today will take more patience, courage, and thoughtfulness than was needed a generation ago, and yet there is no substitute. Jesus told the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's in Acts 1.8. But in Acts 8.4, this is right after Stephen gets killed, you'd think maybe they were like, oh, maybe that was the wrong message. It didn't do that. It did the opposite. In Acts 8.4, we're told that after the persecution in Jerusalem, all the Christians were scattered and they evangelized wherever they went. Obviously, not all Christians are either gifted or called to do public speaking, he says. But it meant and it means that every Christian talked to friends, neighbors, and colleagues about the gospel. And so joining that stat in with what he's saying, my fear is that those of us who swim in this culture may have felt the effects of what has made evangelism more difficult here in the last generation. Presuppositions about God have changed. Presuppositions about man have changed in our society. Church scandals, ignorant, partial truths that we see spewing, um, social media and otherwise. But this is my fear, is that when the culture tells you that you have no right to tell someone else that it would be best for them to change their belief, which... Keller's always really good about pointing these uh, self-refuting arguments out. But he points out, this is a self-refuting argument because they're telling you to do the same thing with their statement. But when the culture tells you all the time that you have no right to do this, I think we start to believe it sometimes. And we forget our mission that we've been given from Jesus. 
47% of practicing Christians from 20 to 34 said it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a faith different from them in hopes that they would one day share the same faith. So there's a lot of obstacles to fulfilling our mission, but we have the word of God, and it speaks to those obstacles. And you want to know what it says? It says do it anyway, right? It says to just keep doing it. It says you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. It doesn't say, it doesn't give us another way out. Or it says it in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Go make disciples. And then we say, I, at least I do, I make excuses. It's really hard to navigate this culture for Christ. All authority has been given to me to make disciples. And, and then it's, it's, well, I don't know, I might be, make, may be uncomfortable at, at family Thanksgiving or Christmas if we're still allowed to have them. It might be uncomfortable. I don't know what I should do. And I can't talk. And Jesus says, who made the mouth? Go make disciples. Like, it doesn't change. And I, I, this illustration came to my mind, and it's very real uh, to me. It never, it's burned into my mind, actually. We were playing football when I was a junior in high school, and uh, we played this team that won state, and it was the quarterfinals. So it was a really big game for us. And uh, they, ran this, they ran this play. It was a counter. And the backside guard would come kick out my position that I played. And so... It, it's awesome. It looks really, really great at first. Like you see the play happening in front of you. You run up there. You're like, I'm going to make the tackle. But the not awesome part is you get blindsided on a trap block. Like it's a trap, that meme, perfect, exactly what happens. And so we practiced it all week. We knew that that's what Hobart does. We're going to, you know, shut it down. We're going to, you know how, how teams get. We're going to shut them down and we're going to win state, all that. We did not win state. Um, but the first... Uh, the very first series, I remember it really well um, because the first play, I'm supposed to destroy the block. That's what we have technique on. How do you destroy it? You can wrong arm the trap block. You can do all these different things, right? And so I run up there, and I think I'm going to make the tackle. They run the counter right at me, and I'm a, like literally like for me to this microphone to tackle this guy, and then all of a sudden I'm in the air, and I probably land a good five feet out of my gap, and then I somehow survive. And I, like, turn around, like, flip over my stomach, and I see the guy gets tackled, like, 10 yards down the field. And I, I was like, oh, man, that one hurt, right? I mean, there's a few. You get your clock clean sometimes. It just hurts, and you just know you got to get up, right? So I kind of peel myself off the ground. I'm, like, expecting my coach to say, good job. You sacrificed for the team. Way to go. And I got up, and he was not happy at all. And I survived. I was alive, and I thought that was a big accomplishment. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, he's like, destroy the block. And I was like, I don't, I don't have the ability to destroy that block. I don't. It's just not him. That guy was 250, 6'4", and he was running full speed. And I'm not that, and I wasn't that, especially then. Um, I might be approaching 250, but I definitely wasn't <laughs> that back then. So, <laughs> but I remember the first couple times he'd say, destroy the block. And I'd say, yes, sir, yes, sir. But about the third or fourth time, which, by the way, any offensive coordinators in here know if you run a play and it gets 10 yards, you don't stop calling the play, right? You keep calling the play. And he kept calling. He wasn't a bad coach, turns out. He kept calling the play. And so about the third or fourth time, I was like, coach, I started making excuses. Like, that is not anything like we simulated in practice. That sophomore guard that kept doing that in practice, that was really easy. That is not the same guy. And then I'd say, like, that guy was way bigger than me or, I, you know, all these different things. But coach said the same thing every time. He kept saying, destroy the block. And his message didn't change because he knew. He, he wasn't, my coach wasn't a dummy either. He's a Hall of Famer, actually. He knew. He, it's not the first time he'd seen a trap block. It's not the first time he'd seen the counter play. 
He knew the answer to defeating the enemy was to destroy the block. No matter what, whatever it took, right? And I thought it was going to take my life that night. He almost did. Um, but I think that that's what, that's what popped into my mind when I was thinking about this. I think this is how we can talk to God when we can't fulfill the Great Commission sometimes. And we make our excuses. You know, my neighbor's not open. You hear it. You know, all authority's been given to me. Go make disciples. I just got a great job. That might cost me that. That might cost me a promotion in whatever realm I'm in. What if I don't go out with the boys or the girls and go do this or that? Am I going to get that promotion if I don't cozy up? Maybe, right? Maybe. But we have to trust the one to whom all authority has been given. 2 Timothy 4.5 speaks to this. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We might say it hurts, right? It hurts. That's what I ended up saying about the fifth or sixth time to my coach. That was my It just hurts. There's nothing else I can say, but it hurts, right? And 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as the good soldier of Christ Jesus. It hurts. Evangelism will hurt. If it's your, your mission and it's the great commission, there's bound to be a battle because the enemy knows exactly where the front line is, and he's going to go right there, Right? 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. It hurts, God. 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all, all, that's a promise. We talked about that. We don't always claim this promise, right? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm afraid to share my faith, God. 2 Corinthians 4, the word speaks to us, right? 17 through 18, this is a light momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that we, that are seen are transient. They go away. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We're so far removed from actual persecution sometimes, are we not? Like this sounds like just another world to us. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to sound like another world to us. And it's not a guilt trip. I know we don't live in a in inland China right now, and we're, not, we're told if we share the gospel, we'll get our head cut off. We're, I know that's not here, but we need to be okay with some persecution, right? Evangelizing the lost is under attack in so many ways. I teach high school at a, at a Christian school, and I get frequent reports of people who um, are asking if hell, maybe what they're being taught at certain places, if hell is either real or eternal. I get that question a lot. So it may be like, yes, evangelism is being attacked by persecution in China or wherever else, or North Korea, but here it's being attacked in other ways, not just persecution. Maybe it's liberal 
denial of biblical doctrines, right? Um, and I'm not saying hell is the number one reason to evangelize, but can I not act like it is one, right? And it's, it's, it's always, it's, why do we got to try to explain away the consequences? That's what I don't understand anymore. I hear that a lot. Well, you, you only sinned against God for 75 years in your life, so maybe the last 75 years, or maybe after 75 years of hell, it goes away. Once again, we're trying to explain, and it takes no account into the holiness of God. It's not the fact that we sin 75 years or whatever, however long we live. It's the fact that God is so holy that if we sin one time, it was enough to separate us forever. The American Gospel movie, the guy, the preacher did a really good job uh, talking about this. He had a really good illustration. He said that um, if you walk into a, uh, a, a salvage lot and there's some old car there with no wheels and it's all rusting, you take your key and you key it, there's really no offense, right? But then if you bring a brand new Lamborghini up and it's in the parking lot and you key that, the offense is much greater, right? And you will get in trouble for that. Uh, it's a little different. And the nature of the object of what he's trying to say is what determines how great the offense is. Not, it's not a one-for-one, one. oh, you sinned 75 years, therefore you're in hell 75 years, right? And there's many souls in Enid, all the way out to the zero areas, that we pray and we fast for. And, and you are going to have faces of coworkers, of family members. You'll have names that you've prayed for. Maybe those of you that have gone to Dragontown, you have names, you have faces, and you pray for God to give them a new heart. And that is how God works in this. Those are the hounds of heaven that are after these people. He allows us to take part in this good work for our joy and for his glory, for their joy and eternal salvation, so that his name is praised across the globe, which is really what we're after. And it's an incredible thing to be a part of. And that's why we're here right now. That's why you hear it all the time. That's why we're not just saved and then sucked out of the world, right? We have a mission to do. God says in Ephesians 2.10 that he's created good works for you to walk in from eternity past. There's a lot of joy that comes in that obedience. And we need to understand that we're taking part of that work. We need to take the 10,000 year view, right? We're going to be joining arms with Tibetans around the throne of God someday. That's a beautiful thing to think of. So the momentary light afflictions, we can see them in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. All the hurdles and inconveniences that we make or I make, all the excuses I make, they go away when you start to believe this. When you really want something, we all do this. When we really want something, do we not remove obstacles to get it? We do. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a car, anything, anything that's comfort we do. That we, but are we doing the same thing to pursue God's greatest purpose instead of just the gifts he gives us? Those aren't bad. All I'm saying is maybe I sacrifice more to go on vacation than I do for the greatest gift of all. Vacation's a great gift. But God's greater. It's way better, right? We say things, at least I do. I've got my whole life here. I've got four kids. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 1 Thessalonians 3 Two through four. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. The afflictions are just assumed, right? For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass, and just as you know. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, he's a prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Once again, all just verses that remind us that our mission, when we have obstacles and we're told to fulfill it anyway, God has words for us, right? And I'll finish with this one. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 through 10. Behold, now, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way with great endurance. Man, shouldn't Christians be known as the one that have the most endurance? Not the weak ones, right? That's what we want to be, is the ones that are known as the great endurance. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And I'll leave us with this. I think I get overwhelmed sometimes, and I think we all probably do by the mission. It seems like a really big mission, doesn't it? It seems like a big mission. We look out and we see that there's 16,000 people groups in the world, and 6,000 are still unreached. That's a big mission. But when we look at Acts and see how the mission just started with 11 people, and 10,000 have been reached... That's amazing. I think we should take heart. I think we should take heart. And I also think that, and this is kind of how our approach here has been, if, whatever, I don't want to like, okay. There's 6,000 people groups left that have not been reached. And all that means is that if one out of every 30 American churches just adopted one, the task would be finished. So it's not that, it's not crazy to think that if everyone was on mission, if every church was on mission, it'd be done. It's not that far away, and that's what we believe here. We're going to go after the Chanic speaking Tibetans, and you join with us, right? We're going to go after all of them. We're going to go after your neighbor. We're going to go after your family members that don't believe. It's all the same, right? We're trying to do this mission until Jesus comes back, or may God let this church die. It's that simple. There's a couple things that we're commanded to do until the Lord's return. I love I can't sing a holy night. <laughs> I can't sing it. You guys, you guys were awesome, by the way, too, just hearing voices and, and the instruments. You guys are great. That's part of it. I can't sing it because I can't even, like, imagine the voices and, and the glory that happens when everyone gets to sit around the throne and, and sing praises to God. And that our God would, like, condescend as an infant to come enter into our situation. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful time of year. And so it's not just the mission that we're given. He also gives us other ways to remember, and that's why Advent's so important. We remember um, the tradition uh, that kids, people have been doing in churches for 1,700 years and more. 
And there's also a couple things we are commanded to do until he returns, like taking the Lord's Supper. One of them, like I said, is this family meal to remind us what Christ did in taking our sins on the cross. And so as uh, Ryan comes up to pray for us, I want to remind you that this, this meal is for followers of Jesus, and, and we would love for you to take it. And if you have never taken Jesus, take Jesus instead um, as we focus on the great commission that he has given us to finish um, our lives. Ryan. Let's pray. God, you have called us to check our hearts today. Are we on your mission? Is your greatest passion our passion? Is your greatest command being obeyed by us and we examine our hearts now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper and we know that our hearts are not right in the middle of your heart. We know we are passionate about things that don't matter at all. We make sure that they get done. We yell, we turn red, we scream. We pour money into it, our time, and it is something that will waste away when you destroy the earth and make it again. And we are not pouring ourselves like we could into your greatest purpose for that world and for our church, and that is being ministers of reconciliation, telling people what you have done to make people right with you, the links that you have gone through to make us a new kind of man, a new kind of woman. And it's sinful, and we make all kinds of excuses for it, and none of them compare none of our excuses stand up under the urgency of the need for people to hear the good news and so I just pray that we'll be honest with ourselves and that we'll repent and that we will realign our hearts and our minds with yours that we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves and stop making excuses based on fear based on our assessment of the danger that's not how Christians have lived in the past, and that's not how we want to live now. We know there is no real, great, imminent danger to us because we're in you. Jesus, you've spared us, your Father's wrath, by stepping in the way on the cross. That's what we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. So I pray that that truth and that your example of boldness and courage and suffering for God's glory, that that would be ours and that we would embrace that and care nothing about our lives, but care about your glory, Lord. Make us bold. Uh, we're entering into the Christmas season, and we're going to be around people, relatives, uh, people who don't know you. I pray that we would be mindful of that. I pray that we'd be prayerful of that and be sicking your hounds of heaven, Holy Spirit, on them so that you can change their hearts and open up their ears to hear the truth on our lips, God. We rejoice in you today. I also want to pray for people today, even though we're not a come and see church, we're a go and tell church. There are probably people here today who don't know who you are. And I pray 
that you will open up their eyes, that they will bow the knee, that they will turn from their sins, and that they will trust you, Jesus, knowing that you died in their place and that they can be born again, made a new creature, and become your disciple, God. It's not a, a feeling. <laughs> it's a gift from you to begin to know you, God. And if there are those who doubt, I pray that you would give them faith, that you would give them hearts that trust you and make them new. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. Let us be on your mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.